The views and opinions expressed during Eye on the Triangle do not represent WKNC or the student media. Your dial is currently tuned to Eye on the Triangle at WKNC 88.1. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle, a student-run, student-scripted, and student-produced news show on 88.1 WKNC HD1 Raleigh. I'm Aaron Kling. On this week's episode of Eye on the Triangle, we're bringing you an interview with Sheila E. E. Song of the NAACP on voter infringement, a look at the student pulse report from Barnes & Noble, and a short announcement about the Bill of Rights in the Museum of History in Raleigh. So don't touch that dial. Eye on the Triangle is up next. I'm Aaron Kling with WKNC 88.1, Eye on the Triangle, and I'm speaking with Sheila E. E. Song at the NAACP People's Hearing on Voting Infringement. Let's get right into it, Sheila. Great to be here. Thank you. Why is the 2020 election so important to the mission statement of the NAACP? You spoke of a small pebble effect. What is that? Well, the 2020 election is very important because all elections are important for the NAACP. What we're trying to do here is we're trying to create a culture where our members, but also our coalition partners and the general public take elections seriously and think of it as a 365-day-a-year activity. Um, Every year is important, whether there's a presidential election or not, but obviously the stakes are a little bit higher during a presidential election. 2020 um, is going to be an interesting year because the political climate shifted pretty dramatically when we elected the president in 2016, and there was that shift from President Obama to President Trump. Now, we, of course, are a 501c3 organization, so we're nonpartisan. However, usually when you have a presidential election, that usually is good for turnout, right? Because more people, you know, are aware of it. There are a lot more commercials. There's a lot more money. And so that's generally a good thing for our constituency base, because that means that more folks are going to get to the polls. But like I said, we're trying to really encourage a culture of voting. We want people to take municipal races and off years seriously. We want people to take the April 1 2020 census seriously because that's just as important and some would even say even more important than the presidential election because you get to do the presidential election again in four years you don't get to do the census again in four years you got to wait 10 years to accurately count who lives within your jurisdiction and as we all know that directly affects federal funds and it affects every federal program that you can think of everything from you know roads to you know student aid for college students to you know folks looking for housing help, business help, Medicaid. It affects every single issue you can think of. And so we're really trying to build a culture and we're trying to become the black political hub of power. We want folks to know that 
the folks that are you know members of the NACP and the black community generally one vote they engage and you know if you are going to run for office or try to push a certain legislation then you're going to need to engage our community and you need to do that in an intentional and honest way one portion of the uh, the speech that really grabbed me was that you're extending your message out beyond black voters you're extending it to uh, Hispanic voters uh, Asian voters mixed race voters you're, you're really trying to approach as many people as possible why why is that coming to the forefront and of course it's been an issue for for a long time that you've been trying to address but but why now i mean i think that you know coalition building is at the bedrock of any political victory right you can't win any election with just one community right unless it's a super small election with you know just maybe a few hundred people any election is going to take coalitions and you know we just think that it's really important to start thinking outside of the box there's been a lot of losses that have happened in North Carolina specifically and throughout the country over the last few years, whether it's the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, Section 5, which is one of the reasons why we're here today, to, you know, Supreme Court battles, to elections, right? If you're going to be partisan, if the person you wanted didn't get into office. And what we're trying to emphasize and what we're trying to do is we're trying to be just as intentional with our external strategic partnerships as we are with our internal plans, right? We as an NACP are a membership-based organization. We have over 300 chapters throughout the country. We have local chapters, and then we have state conferences that oversee those local chapters. We take that very seriously because we want folks to know that we are not just some national organization that's flying people in and telling them what to do. No, we listen to our local leadership. That's why we're here. That's why this was an event that wasn't driven necessarily by national. It was resourced by national, but it was driven by our local leaders that told us who we wanted to put in the room, who we wanted to ask to speak, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, what we're finding is that if we are more intentional about engaging our external strategic partners, we're more successful. And so what we've done is we've joined partnership that is funded through the Kellogg Foundation, where we're in partnership that works towards racial equity, towards um, solving racial justice issues, and towards just being an all around, um, you know, more rounded organization, more nuanced organization. So we're working with organizations like Unidos US, organizations like the National Congress of American Indians, Advancement Project, Demos, the National Urban League, let's see, um, the Asian and Pacific Islander American Health Forum. We're also working with, let's see, who am I forgetting? Probably forgetting one or two, um, Race Forward, definitely their Advancement Project. All of those different organizations either speak to a different racial constituency or are organizations that do racial justice specific work. And so we're all sitting together in a room to talk about how some of these issues translate to our communities, come up with next steps, but then also come up with collaborative messaging that can speak across racial lines. And we find that to be really enhancing in terms of our political power because like I said, you can't really win with just one constituency group. We've seen that in 2016, we saw that, you know, in 2012, we saw that in 2008. Right. When you ask folks and when you try to figure out how President Obama and even President Trump were able to win those elections, it's because they had coalitions. They had people supporting them across, you know, racial groups, across gender, across socioeconomic status, across geography. When you're looking at, you know, folks that live in urban communities versus folks that live in rural communities, you have to be intentional about that. And we're not just trying to check off those boxes and say that we're in the room just to speak to folks so that we're in the room to speak to them. No, we're actually trying to build power. We, you know, some of those issues that affect 
these other communities affect us. And so why not get together to tackle it together? And that's what we're trying to do. A critical issue facing these communities is voter infringement. And a lot of the reason why everyone's gathered today is to discuss voter infringement. That's been a core component of the meeting today. Could you define voter infringement? Well, that's pretty hard to do. I mean, I'm not looking at a dictionary right now, but I mean, if I had to just, you know, off the top of my head, define voter infringement, I would say it's, you know, voting rights abuses that are intentional and specifically targeted towards specific communities and trying to discourage them from voting. I've said once before that voter infringement is not necessarily saying you cannot vote. It's just making it more difficult for you to vote. And because turnout is something that we as the United States and in our democracy struggle with, right, turnout is just generally low, especially when it's an off presidential year, you know, Voter infringement and in laws that are making it more difficult for people to get places or making it more difficult for people to access things is only going to limit the amount of people that get the opportunity to ex- exercise their right to vote at the ballot. And so that's how I would define it. You know, I'm not sure how the dictionary would define it, but that that's what comes to mind for me. It's intentional tactics that are used to disenfranchise marginalized communities and discourage them from exercising their right to vote. Would you define these specifically as ID laws? The- the redrawing of political boundaries or anything like that? Would you consider these to be permanent things that cannot be changed by the people? I wouldn't say permanent, but I do think that what you just described, voter ID, you know, laws and barriers and things of that nature, language access issues, right, not having it translated so that, you know, different people in different communities can understand things. I mean, those are things that people do right now and they get away with it because they're loopholes or because certain people aren't looking. And I would definitely, those are definitely examples. I wouldn't use them as, I wouldn't use them to define voter infringement or or voter disenfranchisement or even voter suppression, but I would say that those are examples of ways that folks do disenfranchise communities. There are a number of of different things, but those are two that definitely come to mind. If If you need someone to show a specific ID, for instance, if we're talking about the American Indian population, right, and different tribes that don't necessarily carry a driver's license or a typical state ID, because that's just not how they have navigated living in, 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 you know, on, on their reservations. If you now make a law so that individuals who are part of these communities have to now get a state ID, you're you're making it more difficult, and you're also going outside of what are their cultural norms, right? And that is an example of voter disenfranchisement, and is something that folks are tackling um, throughout the country. One of the things that you mentioned was uh, that the NC State voting area, the entire college, and all the students involved, the college where WKNC is hosted is currently split. Would you like to go into that more? Um, I don't have the maps in front of me, so I can't, you know, I'm not looking at them, so I don't want to misspeak in terms of where it is split, but I do know that North Carolina in general is notorious for having very, very interestingly drawn maps. That's that's the way I would describe it. I mean, you literally can have someone who's um, living in one dorm, which is on one side of for instance, a fictional first street and someone who's living on the other side of a fictional first street in another dorm and they're in two different districts, right? We all know that, you know, college students are transient in, in the sense that they generally don't live in, you know, permanently, at least in the communities that they attend college. They may live down the street. They may live out of state. And so when you add on top of that already kind of confusing status of, okay, do I vote at home? Do I vote here? Another layer of, okay, everyone in the same campus, literally on the same street, are in two different jurisdictions. I mean, what do you expect is going to happen? There's going to be confusion. It's going to discourage people. People aren't going to get out there to vote. People tend to think that young people vote a certain way. You can connect the dots. All of it 
needs to be addressed. If you go to a campus and you live on one side of the street, you shouldn't be in a different uh, you know, uh, polling station as the person that lives across the street. That just doesn't make any sense. I'm willing to agree with that one for sure. Thank you very much, Sheila E. Song. I'm Aaron Kling from WKNC, I am the Triangle, and we're here at the NAACP People's Hearing on Voter Infringement. Again, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Really appreciate this opportunity. Recently, Barnes & Noble released their latest edition of the Student Pulse, a report on student academic success and retail data. Now, these reports originate from information derived from 100,000 surveys conducted nationwide, giving a window into how students make their purchasing decisions during a semester. This year's report features an expanded section on freshmen with an eye towards student retention. Starting off, we have information on course material access and affordability, and its role in student success. Interesting to note, 89% of all students responded that textbook availability was critical to academic success, yet only 51% of students had books on the first day of class. Being in the trenches of academia myself, this can be due to multiple factors, such as late financial aid, personal budgeting, or the possibility of a class not absolutely requiring a textbook. Materials can be pretty expensive, and survey respondents seem to agree. 41% claimed that colleges are not attempting to increase affordability of materials. This doubt extends to academic online tutors, with a 55% majority of students either unsure or disappointed in accessibility. Retention of freshmen is a constant concern among institutions, and for good reason. According to U.S. News & World Report, one-third of first-year students, one-third, will not return for sophomore year. Barnes & Noble did not commit to any single reason for these dropout rates. Solutions for retention include higher affordability and accessibility to open educational resources, or OER. OER is defined as teaching, learning, and research resources that reside in the public domain or have been released under an intellectual property license that permits their free use and repurposing by others. Within the bounds of the survey, freshmen seem to be quite receptive, with 88% requesting access to course materials at a lower price and bundled with tuition. In the retail section, Barnes & Noble states that many retail industries are now pivoting towards services oriented in regards to Generation Z. 53% of students surveyed claim that email is the leading influencer to shop at the campus store, and as a result, Barnes & Nobles has invested heavily in, quote, highly targeted email campaigns, end quote. Look forward to that in your inbox for the foreseeable future, I guess. The report concludes with stating that every decision made should be guided by student voices to increase engagement, retention, and graduation rates. To facilitate this, campus faculty are called upon to ensure students perceive textbooks as essential learning resources. Information for this segment was derived from the Barnes & Noble College and Student Pulse Insights into Academic and Retail Success 2019 by Barnes & Noble College. Additional information provided by Lumen Learning. What is OER? In other news, North Carolina's copy of its original Bill of Rights will be displayed for a limited time in a lobby case at the North Carolina Museum of History in Raleigh, June 29 through July 7th. Rarely removed from the State Archives Climate Controlled Vault, this document has a dramatic story. A coalition of North Carolinians refused to ratify the original U.S. Constitution until a Declaration of Rights protecting individual liberties was included. James Madison crafted the language for what became the first ten amendments to the U.S. Constitution or the Bill of Rights. 
An original copy of this Bill of Rights was created for each of the 13 original states. North Carolina's copy was held in the state capitol building until, in 1865, it was stolen by a Union soldier. Recovered in an FBI sting operation almost 150 years later, North Carolina's official copy of the Bill of Rights resides in one of two vaults in the state archives. This document guarantees freedom and liberties to United States citizens, stated Sarah Kuntz, state archivist. The Bill of Rights belongs to all the people in our state. As the custodians of it, we are happy to have the opportunity to exhibit this treasure from time to time. Seldom displayed because of its fragile condition, the public will be able to view this document for eight days, from June 29th through July 7th. For more information about the NC Museum of History, a Smithsonian-affiliated museum, call 919-814-7000 or access ncmuseumofhistory.org or follow on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube. That's all for this week's show. A shorter one this week, but next week we've got something special lined up. Thank you to our live audience who has tuned in to hear our sets. It means a lot to us all here, and we're always happy to hear from you as well. That's right. If you have any burning questions or powerful opinions, hit us up at publicaffairs at wknc.org. We are also accepting applicants if you'd like to become a part of the Eye on the Triangle team. And be sure to check out our blog at wknc-eot.tumblr.com. Our intro music for today's show was Safe Sacks by Texas Radio Fish. Copyright 2019, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, 3.0 license. Stay tuned for your usual programming of amazing indie music, and we'll see you all again next time. Take care now.